Welcome back to Peds Ortho, everyone. This is Carter Clement from Children's Hospital of New Orleans. And uh, I've got one of my co-hosts on the line now and two others hopefully joining us shortly. Make that two of us. This is Josh Holt at University of Iowa. This is Craig Lauer from Vanderbilt. Smooth entrance just at the right moment as usual. Nailed it. (laughs) And uh, we have two guests this month. Pretty exciting, both from the Portland Shriners. We've got Jeremy Bauer and Dan Bouton. Before we dive into any literature or anything, let's get to know these guys a little bit. So thank you for joining us. First off, why don't you guys, if you don't mind, just tell us sort of how long you've been in practice, what kind of uh, practice, you know, what kind of subspecialty stuff you usually do, what you like to do. Uh, Jeremy, how about you? Right. Thanks for having us on. I've been here at the Shriners in Portland for about 11 years, mostly focused on kids with cerebral palsy, as well as uh, sports injuries, and then hip, and we kind of treat hip from infant to early adults. Cool. And Dan, how about you? Yeah, my name is Dan Bouton. As you said, thanks for having me. Um, I'm just coming up on year five in practice. Uh, Most of my practice is on spine deformity um, and then a little bit of uh, hip pathology as well, as well as a little bit of trauma that we get here. Perfect. Well, um, as our listeners know, we like to start off trying to just get to know you guys a little bit better with some random questions. So uh, my first question do you guys have any favorite tips or tricks you like to teach trainees? You know, maybe stuff that you think they don't hear other places in their training? You know, I like to spend a little bit of time, I think, in the OR on the on the softer side of orthopedics. And I think, you know, when I was a trainee, no one really taught me what was, no one said what was going on inside their head when they try to decide what was good enough, what was okay, when should you push on, when should you accept it? And so I try to get them to think through those things, think about your emotions, think about when you're tired, when you're distracted, and try to make those things not invisible so that they know that, hey, that's a real thing that you can be tired or you can be distracted or you can be upset with someone. How do all those things go into how you're performing the OR? So I'd like to spend a lot of time just kind of talking on the, the softer side of things. That's nice. Dan, what about you? Yeah, for fear of listing any specific tricks, because I'm sure all of my tricks I gained from somebody along the line, and I'm going to seem like I'm plagiarizing. Um, But I also kind of talk to them more about holistically being a doctor. I try to tell them not not to be a blamer. So not to be someone who reflexively blames the patient for a complication or blames the uh, anesthesiologist, which we can always do. But to always be looking inward and sort of be critical of yourself, because usually you can figure out that it's a decision you could have made better or something you could have done better. That's really what I focus on with them. Uh, next time I'm having a rough week, maybe I'll just fly up to Portland and have a little uh, retreat with you guys. Yeah. It's a kind of place, right? You know, we got a couch you can lay on. <laughs> um, and if you could choose, you never had to drape again or never had to close again. It would just be done perfectly. Which one would you skip? Close. close. No more closing. No more closing. I'd skip, I'd skip draping a bilateral hip any day. <laughs> what if, what if it was between those and then never wearing lead again? Oh, there's no question about the lead. Yeah. Biggest advancement in my practice is navigating a spine. So I don't wear lead. Nice. It is very luxurious. Yeah. There's people who work out wearing these leaded, uh, workout vests and things. I mean, you can look at it as a huge advantage for all of us. <laughs> yeah. If you're trying to make weight, I guess. 
Well, with that, let's uh, let's jump into some of the material. So you guys have been insanely productive in JPO recently. Congratulations. Um, you guys are doing some really cool stuff with gate studies and with promise scores, which I think is really exciting. So the first article that I pulled was, it came out as an EPUB in July, and it is called The Effects of Lower Extremity Rotational Malalignment on Pediatric Patient Reported Outcome Measurement and Information System, in other words, PROMISE scores. And so we usually reassure patients with in-towing or out-towing that they'll be fine for the most part, but it's a really important question, sort of when should we be worried? And the study, I think, gives us some nice objective data. So uh, you guys found that femoral malrotation was associated with pain on the uh, PROMISE scores using gait analysis to measure that malrotation. Uh, I thought it was really interesting that you guys did not use physical exam to measure rotation and you know, also quoted some stuff in the literature saying it's not really reliable. And then I was a little confused about the tibia. In part, it seemed like it said the, the tibia uh, malrotation was related to uh, worse promise scores. In other parts, it seemed like it wasn't. How, sh- how should we understand the results for the, the tibia? I can take that for the tibia. So the tibia rotation in either direction was not significantly associated with promise mobility scores, which the femoral was. Um, but when we created these regression models, and if you combined the absolute rotation of the tibia with pain interference scores, the two of those together were predictive of lower mobility scores. So basically, if you had tibial rotation and pain, you would have less mobility, um, but independently, it was not as predictive. Okay, gotcha. That makes sense. Uh, so, you know, the big question here is, how does this affect your practice, this, this knowledge about the femoral and tibial rotation related to pain and other patient-reported scores? So, like you said, it gives something objective. It also gives a little bit of credence uh, to these children that this isn't a completely benign condition. And so, whereas we see lots of intoers like every surgeon does, and most all of them are, you know, sent away with reassurance and trying to get them into an active lifestyle and all those other components to it. But when it does come down to some of these children, they have big issues with this. And so this really gives us some objective level to say that it's not just us thinking that, that when we look at this, they, they really are having issues. So who gets a, a gait study when you're looking at in-towing or out-towing or other rotational stuff? Yeah. So, you know, I think we discussed in the paper, this is clearly gets the, just the kids that have severe deformities. And so we really only uh, are looking at uh, one, the gait study to figure out if we're not really sure if what part's affecting them. And so sometimes they might have some mild tibial rotation or some mild femoral rotation, and we can't really sort that out. So the gait analysis to me helps that. It also gives me a really good objective measure to see what other effects are happening. We can look at their moments that are happening at the knee. So extreme external tibial torsion might give them a big varus moment at the knee we're thinking so maybe that's going to stress them out and so and then to see after surgery do we make a difference there so well you know we'll tend to use it as a, a marker as a both a decision making and a post surgical to see if we achieved our objective let's say the gate lab was like an hour away and it you know it's a little more taxing for the patients how would you decide who you know which cases is it worth sending someone to get that gate study yeah, great question. And, you know, we're clearly privileged working here and that we have easy access and the way we provide care is different than other models. So I I think that if you were in a different practice, you'd, you'd want to have a, a child that you weren't sure where their deformity was, where you, you know, you weren't sure 
what position their knee was, particularly if they have more severe deformities or combined deformities, it can be harder to differentiate. So I could clearly see if didn't have access to one, you wouldn't jump to doing this every time. So I was uh, very interested and a little panicked to hear that the physical exam, just you know, trying to measure rotation on the table, seemed to be so meaningless. How how does your physical exam factor into, or did, you know, does it help your decision making at all in terms of you know ro- traditional rotational profile, putting them prone, rotating the the hips in and out? Yeah, I'll take that again. I I would say that the literature is really hard to understand in this. So if you look at a CT scan versus an EOS versus physical exam versus their kinematic data, they they don't correlate well, and there's just a lot of factors that go into it. the position of your spine, the position of your pelvis, walking in a laboratory versus walking at home. And then uh, your physical exam measures can vary a little bit, you know, prone versus standing. So I still rely on my physical exam. So if, you know, I really want to have for femoral torsion, if they're really uh, rotated, then I want to see a really very limited external torsion, you know, so maybe they have 10 degrees of external and 70, 80, 90 of internal, then that's the one I'll think about. So I still, I still rely on my exam to help as well as the gait analysis. And so do you mean that helps you figure out who to get the gait analysis on or it actually? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So if if they're mild, I won't even, they don't come to the gait analysis for the mild deformity. And so then my next question, sort of a follow-up is how do you decide who's indicated for a derotational osteotomy? Is that at that point, is that just on the gait lab or does the physical exam factor into that too? Yeah, I think the physical exam factor adds in as well. You know, I think one thing that we can't capture in a gait analysis is the real world data. So some of these kids with femoral internal torsion, they can do a pretty good doctor walk, but as their glute max and their abductors fatigue, they'll go into more rotation. So um, sometimes it, it is tricky to correlate all of those. But to answer your question, if they have a very limited rotation and it correlates with their gait analysis, then I would do it. But if they don't correlate, then I kind of circle back and try to figure out what's going on. Okay. Dr. Walk, I'm going to borrow that. That's great. And just to interject as a non-combatant here, because I don't take care of this, um, I think that was one of the goals of these studies is because we sit, to, we sit in our preoperative indications conferences and we see these. And my general question was just, well, how do we know how much this is affecting these kids? Because we all sort of project our own thoughts on all of our patients, right? Like, oh, I think that's bothering this kid or I think it's not. And that's one of the great things about proms in general is that it eliminates the middleman. It eliminates our biases, trying to get some objective data to see if we can make that a little bit more of, a, of an easier decision as opposed to us just saying, yeah, I think this is going to help you. And that's what we're trying to get at with some of these, these proms. And with big data, hopefully we'll get there. And so you guys have done a really impressive job incorporating promise score and maybe other problems into your practice. What, what's that just sort of been like as a department or as a hospital? And, you know, what advice do you have for anyone else looking to do that? Biggest advice is physician buy-in, I think. So this was a decision that was made by Shriners uh, at the corporate level that they were going to collect promise data, basically on everybody who walks through the building. So every single person gets it and they get it at every visit unless they're within so many days of their previous one. And so we use these as a clinical tool and we they get it loaded um, instantly into our EMR. Um, and so there's definitely some hurdles. We've gone through some changes in how we collect them because it was slowing down clinics at first and we've made some changes on that end. Um, and so it's definitely been uh, a learning process and there've been some bumps along the road, um, but you can use it in real time. And sometimes, you know, you can see a kid who's post up. I'm always amazed that I'll see a kid and I'll walk in the room and the kid says, yeah, I'm doing great. And you go back and you look at their scores and their scores are terrible. 
and maybe they were afraid to tell you because they didn't want to disappoint you after their surgery or, or whatever it might be. And so you can use these as real-time clinical data, and then you can use them you know, as a way to uh, measure your own success and look back and create dashboards. And then you can use them for research purposes like this. So I've been, I've been a big fan of it, but you have to have physician buy-in because if you don't, then the physicians get frustrated because they have to wait an extra five or 10 minutes for their patients. And then you stop collecting them on everybody. And then before you know it, you're not collecting them anymore. I mean, I love, I love these studies that are really putting some more emphasis on patients and their perception of their disability and their perception of their function. At what point do we get to the point where we can be more selective on discussing surgery and offering surgery to patients based more on these scores, right? Because right now, at least for me, it's if the patient has pain and functional problems, that's a yes. But if their rotational profile is within what I would think is, you know, an acceptable range, I'm not too keen on discussing surgery with them. So I'm just curious, at what point do we have enough data from studies like this and, and promise scores and things to then say, maybe that weighs more than just the, the physical rotational profile? It's a great point. I, you know, I think our, like Dan was saying, our biases are so built into there where we are the, you know, I mean, we have to be a stopgap and a gatekeeper to surgery, but you're right. I see a kid with a more mild deformity but extreme pain and I get nervous and I, you know, I say no, but you're right that maybe we should be looking more at this. Dan, what were you thinking? No, I agree. And I think that no matter how much data we get, it's still going to be some clinical equipoise. And it's going to be upon us to try to balance this data, right? If we have long-term data that might suggest that somebody's condition is going to cause pain and disability later in life and short-term data that their problems are good, well, then we have to weigh, you know, one versus the other. Is it worth it for me to make this patient happy for the next two years if it's going to cause them more problems later down the line? So I think we're always going to be weighing these different types of outcome measures. And uh, patient-reported outcome measures is just another outcome measure uh, as well as, you know, radiographs and all the other things we look at. So next up, a very related paper this month in JPO. 3D gait analysis and patient-reported outcomes of femoral osteotomies for torsional deformity. So uh, you guys have 54 patients here who got uh, femoral osteotomies. 37 of them had too much internal torsion. 17 had too much external torsion. You guys basically found that the patients with too much internal torsion had more improvement in their gait and in their proms. All the patients had gait analysis. All of them had patient-reported outcomes. And uh, the femoral osteotomies were mostly distal with a plate, somewhere mid-shaft with a nail. The goal of the surgeries was, it sounded like always basically creating a symmetric arc of rotation and internal and external rotation. And the patients were typically corrected by about 40 to 45 degrees. So um, in conclusion, children with external femoral rotation improved after derotational osteotomies, but less so than patients with internal rotation. And interestingly, those externally rotated kids kept walking with some external rotation despite the surgical correction. Uh, why, why do you guys think these sort of surprising findings came out? Yeah, I think, well, it wasn't surprising, I guess, to me. And that was the reason why I did the paper. I just, I felt that every time I did a surgery for external femoral torsion, that the kids just didn't do well. And so uh, when I looked back at them, you know, we looked at the patient party outcomes and unfortunately some of them were uh, older uh, studies. We, did, we didn't have as many, much data as I would like on all these, but they just weren't happy. And so I think there's a couple things. Their habitus was much different. So these kids were much bigger. And so the bigger 
uh, thighs make it harder to walk with your patellas pointing forward. So these kids had external tibial torsion, which you would think if your tibia is rotated outward, you'd want to bring your feet more in, but they didn't. They keep walking externally. So I think their habitus really drives a lot of that. And that's been shown by John Davids. He looked at the so-called fat thigh gait and just this inability to really move them forward. So I think that's a big component of it. Um, I think they're weaker and I think they're potentially just, it's a different pathology. Uh, really interesting. So what's your practice now, especially for the external ones? I don't do it. And I'm glad that I have a paper that I can tell to quote it for. So, you know, we're just what Josh was asking about with this, you know, their, their outcomes. I just looking at this, I, I've really hesitated to do it. I guess never say never. I think if I was to do it, you know, you'd have to have a really long discussion to say, Hey, this, uh, you know, you often can rotate you, but you're still going to walk you know, the same way. And just like the adult arthroplasty literature, my guess is that these kids will not lose any weight, that it's not going to be a, a weight reduction type of surgery. So I think there's a lot of other factors that are going into their disability. Jeremy, do, do you think they didn't do better because you should have been fixing their skiffy instead? <laughs> Good question. These ones didn't have skiffies, but uh, uh, I think some of them had some contralateral skiffies in some of our, some of our kids. So, so what do you offer them now? I mean, just sort of reassurance or lack of reassurance or, you know, do you have anything you... Yeah. I mean, I, I think that, you know, the tibia per, perhaps might be playing a role for some of them. So maybe if that was it, you could address that. And we know there's some literature that that can affect the knee, but I really push them towards, you know, particularly for the much larger that they need to really look at weight loss, whether it's surgical or otherwise, they need to really move towards that. And what about the uh, the internally rotated kids? When, what's your sort of threshold or how do you think about approaching those surgically? Yeah, I mean, I think I, I tend to look at them again, you know, I guess my subjective uh, data of how, you know, if they if they complain about it, I do think that they're, they're much happier. And this showed that out that they're happier after surgery. I still feel like they have, a lim- have to have a limited rotation arc towards external. And then um, I generally treat the older kids with bilateral simultaneous with a nail just so that they can ambulate. I don't love that surgery, but I think it's better for their outcome just because they can get up and move and get to life quicker. And since the torsion occurs all along the femur, it's not just proximal or just shaft or just distal. It can happen anywhere. I don't think it really matters. So I just go make it easier with a nail. Wow. What do you think the average length of stay is with those bilateral nails? That sounds like a tough one. I think it depends on the kid. Most kids can go home in one or two nights, but really? you know, it depends on the kid. And then how are you determined intra-op? How much you correct? Great question. So a lot of people will do, uh, if they're doing plate, will go prone, which I think has a benefit of being able to do that um, rotation exam you know, on the table. Uh, one of the downsides of doing a nail is that I think I'm less accurate. I think that there's enough toggle between your mm-hmm. uh, proximal and distal screws that you're not quite right. And I, and I tell the family that I, my goal is to be within 10 degrees of, of side to side that it just, I've not been able to eliminate that error. So I use, you know, rotation wires, but there's error with those. And so there's ways to reduce that, but there's always going to be some error. So, but the thing is, I don't think it matters as long as you get them close, they will walk well. So I don't, I don't get too worried about not getting it symmetric. And then are you going for equal internal and external rotation basically, or are you trying to overcorrect a little bit? Yeah, it seemed to work, and you know, in our uh, results, that we that was basically our goal is if they had a you know eighty degrees of internal and ten degrees of external, we just 
we kind of shot from the middle and we hit that most of the time and they walked better after that. Is there a role in your practice for a pre-op rotational profile CT or MRI? You know, I think because for my, my, my opinion, the uh, CT scan is not really going to change my management that I don't. And I, you know, can avoid that risk. And, and again, there's that correlation between exam gate and the CT scans that it's not there. And so I tend not to, we do get EOS imaging on them, but we're still kind of evaluating that here at our uh, hospital. And I know other centers have looked at it as well and trying to figure out if we can get that to really correlate or not. Gotcha. So you're making the decision for the uh, amount of rotation based on their uh, exam. How does the gate analysis play into your decision with these? Just like the, what we were talking about earlier, I, I, if I see, you know, another component, like if they have a lot of external tibial torsion, sometimes that external tibial torsion is, you know, really what's driving them to walk internal. And so it makes me maybe more aware of it. And so not that I'm not looking at the exam, but that can kind of really help drive. And we've, you know, we've changed decisions in our gait analysis meeting by really seeing where the deformity is. Yeah. That's really fascinating. When I take my wellness visit to the Portland Shriners, I'd like to go by the gate lab if that's okay. We'll do um, some return sports testing on you well, as well and see how, how you can, uh, how you can hop. Yeah. That might be bad for my wellness. I don't know. So uh, we have one more paper to talk about uh, and I sort of hate to move away from the rotational stuff. So I think it's so interesting, but this one was from June as an e-publication so also hot off the press, both of you guys are authors, and it's called Promise Scores in Pediatric Idiopathic Toe Walkers. So just another awesome area with a lot of sort of conventional wisdom that may or may not be true. So you guys had 45 toe walkers, and you found that there were worse scores among the toe walkers than their, uh, than their peers for mobility and for relationships with peers, even though there wasn't a difference in pain. So, you know, just in general, what's your, what's your approach to managing these patients when they come into clinic? So I don't know about your all practices, but I feel like when I should made my intro, I should have said that one third of my practice is idiopathic toe walking because that's what it feels like. Um, so that maybe that was a in my non-operative side of things. Uh, we see a lot of a lot of kids uh, with this. We have a pretty good protocol for treatment, and so the impetus of the study was just to, you know, to look to see how they're really, or should we be treating this, you know, do they have an issue? Um, you know, for our kids under five and they don't have contracture, you know, we do think like all of us do make sure we know the diagnosis is idiopathic exam and history and those sorts of things. And if they're under five and they we really, it's just reassurance. Most kids under five are going to grow out of it. Some will persist. And if they are over five and they start to develop contracture and it's mild, we might start thinking towards serial casting. If it's over five and they have no contracture, I think that particularly based off this, that we know that these peer relationships scores are lower and it's hard for kids. It's socially less acceptable. Bullying is an issue for, you know, really any kid going to school. And so I tend to think about treating it. So we'll often treat them with therapy and uh, AFO use, though the data for both of those things are, you know, lacking. The serial casting has a little bit better data. And then as they get older, and if they have develop a contracture, then we'll think about either more aggressive serial casting or surgery. What type of AFOs do you like to use? So for most of the kids, if they're small enough um, or lightweight enough, a PLS is enough to control them. They're not spastic like our kids with cerebral palsy, so they're not pushing through them. Uh, a hinged AFO uh, with a plantar flexion stop is an option, but it ends up being kind of bulky. And so a lot of them tolerate the PLS better just because it's slimmer, it's easier to use, and really does about the same thing. Yeah, well, this is, I, I think this is great. It's a 
patient population that is not the most glorious, but, you know, I worry about them a lot. And I think this is awesome to have some data to show that they are having sequelae from the toe walking and it makes sense to do something about it. Something we see a lot, we don't discuss a lot. Josh, Craig, do you guys have any any questions on this? Yeah, I'd just be interested to hear your thoughts. I've, for that very reason of the bullying and the, you know, starting to have some social awareness that they walk a little different. That's one of the reasons I've largely tried to stay away from AFOs. I, I don't know what a kid tolerates better or gets teased more for walking on their toes or wearing braces on their feet. Yeah. So I'd be curious to know if bracing factors into some of these PRO scores. It'd be interesting to see like a kid with AFOs, where does his promise scores fall compared to the norms? I don't, is that anything you guys looked at at all? Uh, it's a great question. You know, Staley's article, he wasn't, the, he was the senior author. I can't remember who the first author was looked at, you know, orthotic use in kids and they uh, don't remember it fondly. And so uh, I think that there's, there's, you're totally right that we shouldn't think of it as a benign thing. And that's clearly for the younger kids that might grow out of, it. I, I, I really resist treatment of it early on because I'm, I think there's a, there's a downside to brace wears for sure. The flip side is that if they're continuing to toe walk and you can't break their habit, that's a problem. Dan? Yeah, the peer relationship score is something that really shouldn't be discounted either. It seems kind of nebulous when you th- start to think about it. But as an aside, it's not published, but we looked at from a quality improvement standpoint, we looked at every single patient in our hospital over the course of a couple of years who got either non-operative or operative treatment for any condition and looked at their scores after their treatment. And the only predictive factor for their other scores improving, like mobility and pain interference in that, was their peer relationship score. It came out significant for non-operative treatments, for operative treatments, for different diagnoses, for everything. Um, and it's something I'm really interested in. We're looking into with kids with scoliosis, with braces, uh, for the same sort of reason, bullying, we're worried about mental health and suicidal ideation and those things. So I don't think that should be discounted at all. That's a great point, Josh. Yeah, really fascinating. With that, let's move on. Our uh, next segment is called Stir in the Pot, and we are going to talk about a bunch of controversies and uh, figure out the right answers for each one. Dan, why don't we uh, why don't we talk about some spine stuff with you, if that's okay? My first question is, what are the correct antibiotics to give for a uh, neuromuscular spinal fusion? Yes. The answer is yes. <laughs> gram-positive and gram-negative is as detailed as I can get. So we, we like to cover gram-positive and gram-negative. At our institution, we give Zosin. Uh, we don't have to monitor the renal function as closely. Our infectious disease doctors like the dosing. Um, and so we give that prophylactically for all neuromusculars, diapered kids, fusions to the pelvis, et cetera. We'll also use topical antibiotics, which I know is controversial, both gram-positive and gram-negative um, in our neuromusculars. All right. Those are the correct answer. Cool. Yeah. Um, do you brace neuromuscular patients? Yes, I do brace neuromuscular patients uh, with a soft brace typically, and I tell them that it's not going to work. I think it helps uh, some of these kids with their seating. And so if they have a good wheelchair and they have good wheelchair support and they sit well, then I do not brace them. But if they don't, then I do think it helps with their sitting. Um, but I do, I tell every single one of them that there's there's not good evidence that this is going to change the trajectory of your, your curve. But I do think it provides them some, uh, some benefit. Great. And uh, some growing construct questions. Is there still a role for traditional growing rods? Yes, I just lengthened one last week. Uh, absolutely, I think there is. Um, I think especially patients with sagittal plane abnormalities, kyphosis is still a big struggle for uh, the magnetically controlled growing rods. And so uh, I still keep that for whenever I need it. And I do think there's a role. Is there still a role for vectors? 
Ooh, good question. Um, yeah, I, I think there is a role for vector. My biases are a little stronger against that. I, I worry about chest wall stiffness um, after after vectors. Even if we're making the the chest volumes bigger, I worry about. But there are certain you know diagnoses where kids are really diaphragm breathers anyway, and so it's not probably not as important if we're stiffening their chest wall a little bit more. If we're if we're increasing the volume, that then the sort of diaphragm works better as a piston. So yeah, there's still a role. Although I, I will tell you, I have not put one in in my practice. For TGRs and uh, magnetically controlled growing rods, um, what is the correct proximal anchor construct? Uh, I like to go for six anchors proximally, uh, whatever I can get, basically. Um, I do prefer uh, spine anchors over rib anchors. I, I don't have strong opinions on that, but I, if I can get six good spine anchors, I will. And it's usually a combination of screws and hooks. All right. Um, Craig, Josh, I feel like you guys want to jump in with spine stuff. Should I, should I press on? or? I mean, those were all the right answers, so I just <laughs> have nothing else to say. Uh, Jeremy, let's talk about a couple quick sports things. Should we be fixing first-time shoulder dislocators? Oh, great question. I, uh, I prefer them, but uh, I think the first time in our young group, I, uh, I still think I'm a rehabber. Patellar dislocations? Uh, MRI. And then uh, rehabber. Okay. Um, is trochleoplasty a viable option? No. Okay. And what what is your threshold? Do you want discussion on that? I just uh, yes, it's an option, but <laughs> I it's like it. my last option in a skeletally immature, uh, and uh, it's just it's like option number five. Can I cut out everything after no? Is that okay with you? <laughs> That's fine with me. Um, what's your threshold during a TTO to uh, distalize it? I have a very low threshold. And I think that changed in my practice. And so I look at the pre-op MRI to look at the, you know, the engagement and the uh, trochlea. And so I don't treat the TTTG that often, but I do treat, I feel like I treat the patella alta more. So yeah, okay. you know, generally doing a centimeter of each. Interesting. When you're doing uh, distalization, do you do more fixation, three screws or bicortical screws or, yeah, or bicortical. Limit, limit their motion? Yeah, I, so I let them I let them weight bear with a brace locked in extension and try to um, keep the motion under ninety so that they're not really passively uh, stretching it too much. Great. All right, I've I've got one that's going to make me feel sportsy. What's your favorite? What is the correct radiographic index for measuring patella alta? Yeah, what, it's, how do you determine uh, how far to take it? <laughs> It, uh, in a young, in an immature kid, the best is the Koshino, but it's not good. So the best is bad. And so I really rely on the MRI. While we don't really have good normative data, I use what we have to try to help make that decision because, you know, a lot of it's not ossified and making that uh, x-ray decisions doesn't really work. Nice. Um, Jeremy, I'm really interested, given your background combining sports and uh, cerebral palsy, I had a few mentors during training with similar backgrounds, and I really appreciated the way they thought about things. Just your average kid who comes in with anterior knee pain, I'd love to hear sort of your, your approach to that. Well, I wish I didn't have to see kids with anterior knee pain, but I do. You know, obviously, it's a multimodal thing, lifestyle, doing them active, I really believe that their hip strength is a big issue that, you know, we're taught as orthopedics to get their quads strong, but their proximal control is a big thing. And there's good level one evidence that hip abductor and quad strengthening is better than just quad strengthening. So 
that's when I really push that, push the therapy. And I really rarely ever get to anyone to operate on for uh, knee pain. It's really just instability that I operate on. Really getting your dynamic control of your knee is important. I, I just ask every kid to hand me their phone and I take a video of them doing a single leg squat and then I show it to them. And it's a you know nice way. They always have a phone. You can show them how bad their proximal control is. And at least they seem to get it. Maybe I need a prom for that to let me know if they really did get it or not. <laughs> nice. That's a, that's a great trick for those of us without readily, readily available proms. Um, all right. Awesome. Let's move on to the lightning round. So we got a few recent articles and uh, we'll go through them like lightning. How about to Craig? All right. You guys want hips or spine first? Let's keep everyone engaged with the hips. That's, a, that's at least a generalizable thing. This study is uh, from Finland uh, in JAMA Network Open. Uh, August 2022. It's called Incidents of Neonatal Developmental Dysplasia of the Hip and Late Detection Rates Based Off Screening Strategy, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis. And so I've, I've always read the, I've read the Cochrane Review that was uh, previous to this, where it talks about universal screening and what it does to our treatment rates. And so I think we're aware that universal screening increases your rate of treatment. Um, but the question that, uh, that I want to pose to you all is, um, with this most recent review, new and up-to-date, does it decrease our late dislocations and our rates of DDH surgery yet? Are we finally getting there? What do you guys think? Let's go around the horn. I don't think so. I'm going to go no, not yet. Josh doesn't believe. Jeremy? You know, I'm a believer because I don't think that the study, uh, the ultrasound causes the overtreatment. I'm pretty sure it's the uh, surgeon or practitioner that does the overtreatment. So I still think that I'd much rather catch as many as I can. We'll still miss them. Particularly in the uh, North America, we don't have, we don't have a way of capturing them. So we'll still see them, but I'd love to not see a late dislocated hip. Dan, you want to weigh in? I'm just going to agree with Jeremy on this one. I I think that more information is probably better, especially because a lot of our early treatments are are relatively benign anyway with the pavlocarnus at such a young age. Carter, you know? I've got some insider knowledge. I'm the, I'm the yeah, same. you suggested the article. So, um, again, with this meta-analysis, and granted, they are including some older studies, but um, universal screening with everything pulled together does not decrease your late dislocations and rate of DDH surgery. Um, just for some numbers, in terms of the early treatment, uh, if you universally screen, about 10% of the population ends up getting treated for DDH in terms of, it seems like mostly pavlic harness and bracing, maybe just a stretching in some patients. If you're doing selective screening, it's 3% of our populations getting treated. In terms of late detected DDH rates, um, it was actually uh, similar treatment and detection rates um, of oper- and then operatively treated DDH rates are similar among all strategies, essentially 0.02%. So a really small number Um, but a number that's not decreased with universal screening, which is just so interesting to me and uh, as to why that happens. I don't know why universal screening can't catch these one in in or two in 100,000 cases, but it it can't. I think it's got to be a limitation of the ultrasound. It'd be real interesting to see with more 3D ultrasound and a really better understanding of what that hip looks like in three dimensions. I mean, I have to think it's a limitation of the test more so than the application of selective or universal or not. That's a good point because a lot of these places are just are just graph classic or just a graph ultrasound, right? They're not they're only doing a single view coronal neutral. They're not doing a full hip ultrasound, so maybe yeah, maybe we're missing some instability. Right, but as a 
as a sort of devil's advocate, right, in a real world scenario, that's not going to be possible, right? I mean, we're talking about trying to universally screen, even in our country, which is a very developed country, you're not going to get the same quality everywhere. So yeah. I, I would argue against universal screening, isn't it? Yeah. All right, Josh, you want to take the next one? Yeah. Speaking of screening and monitoring things, so this one is uh, looking at a non-invasive hemoglobin monitoring for post-operative patients. So they looked at 46 patients prospectively comparing typical venipuncture hemoglobin with a non-invasive form in kids. This has been shown, and I actually did a study looking at this in arthroplasty patients and adults to be a, a pretty reliable way, but curious um, in kids, is this a reliable way to test non-invasive hemoglobin monitoring compared to typical venipuncture? I would guess yes. My Apple Watch can do a lot of amazing things. Honestly, kids are too variable. I'm going to go with a no. I think uh, I didn't really hear the question, but I'm going to go with yes in light-skinned kids only. Okay. So what they found was actually that the non-invasive hemoglobin was significantly higher than the typical venipuncture. And so clinically, it didn't pan out to matter because none of the kids got a transfusion, but they showed that the non-invasive was significantly higher than the typical, which is probably the opposite of what you'd want. You'd probably rather get scared by the non-invasive, and if it's low, then follow it up with a typical hema uh, venipuncture. So to me, unfortunately, it wasn't the opposite way. Was it consistent, though? Like, could you extrapolate, or was it not consistent? You know, consistently high, meaning you could just subtract whatever to get your actual number. 1.5 was the was the differential. So pretty tight, pretty tight. 1.5 versus 1.1 on the venipuncture. So maybe a little bit wider range of confidence interval than the venipuncture, but reasonably reliable. Well, we get um, a lot of point of care sort of finger stick uh, hemocues or hemoglobins here, uh, which I call the random number generator. But it just reinforces the fact that really we should be treating these kids symptomatically, right? I mean, we don't really care too much what the number is unless it gets. And if you look at the um, the new guidelines, the, the numbers are extraordinarily low when they actually recommend a transfusion. So the hemoglobin less than five is when a transfusion is recommended. And then less than seven with symptoms is when you consider it, which is much lower than whenever, whenever I was in training um, when you would start transfusing people. So. Yeah, this is an interesting area. And I, again, I've done some stuff in adults and in kids, you know, when I came back and started, it was a big shift in my transfusion threshold. I actually, in kids who are totally asymptomatic and okay, letting them drift down into the sixes. I don't, I don't think I've ever let someone get down to five. My therapist won't work with people if they have a documented hemoglobin less than seven though. So it's interesting that you run into some of these barriers and things that have just been, you know, standard of care for them and they just say no it's less than seven we're not going to get them up out of bed it's too dangerous with really no no data to support that so um, for the for the spine guys on the call do you think we need to be routinely checking hemoglobin on post-op day one got a got a head shake and no from dan no i don't think so I, I don't see any value to it and just depending on their symptoms so if they're tachycardic hypotensive low urine output then i think you could um, but routinely i don't think it's necessary yeah, yeah. I, I haven't got to the point of not doing it yet, but absolutely that's where I'm trending towards is trying to do it with some data to support that. Yeah, I could probably cut back on the number I'm testing, only do it for certain big cases, uh, special situations. 
All right. The next one is called the degree of postoperative curve correction decreases risks of postoperative pneumonia in patients undergoing both fusion and growth-friendly surgical treatment for neuromuscular scoliosis. This is a single-center study um, from the Columbia Group uh, in August of 2022, JPO. I mean, obviously, you know their conclusion, but my question for you guys is, what do you think the rate of pneumonia is in a neuromuscular scoliosis patient, at least preoperative? What is what percentage of them have had pneumonia in their past? I would say in the last two years prior to surgery, 47%. Let's say lifetime because they don't lifetime. have it divided up that way. They have okay. the two-year post, they have the two-year post-op, but before it's just any single case, how many, what percentage of patients have had a case of pneumonia? Yeah, I'm going to say 73 did you say that in, in neuromuscular patients or just early onset? It's, neuro, it's neuromuscular. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I would say high, 80, 80%. Jeremy, you treat neuromuscular? Yeah, patients? I would Yeah, I would say 80. I'd, I'd, I'd go up to, yeah, at least 80, 90. Julia, you have lungs. What do you think? I do. I think I have lungs. <laughs> they work pretty well most of the time, unlike these kids. Yeah, I, I'm going to go 70%. Yeah, so the rate that they found was 66%. This was kind of novel because um, the published rates are actually a lot lower, like 17 to 29%. But this study was unique, and they uh, they talked about the fact that they actually called all these patients' families, gave them a little bit of a survey about their rates of pneumonia so it could capture when they went to other hospitals and their local hospitals with pneumonia as opposed to just the times they show up to their local institution, as most retrospective studies do. So 66%, and then they had pretty small numbers, but they will try and convince you that the percent of curve correction did decrease the risk of postoperative pneumonia. So if you had a greater than 50% curve correction, you had about um, a risk reduction of about uh, twice uh, the number of those who had less than 50% curve correction. So they're uh, saying that curve correction is important in these cases, but uh, definitely needs to be repeated in a longer, uh, larger group of patients. Interesting. Okay, now let's go to the knee, back to the knee. So this is a study from Rainbow Babies in uh, Cleveland looking at the proximal tibia anatomy when you're doing percutaneous epiphysiodesis using transficeal screws where should we aim the screws? Where is the where is the epiphysis the thickest and the best place to get good purchase without going into the joint? So on the coronal and sagittal planes, your options are as far lateral as you can, right in the middle, at the 33 kind of percent from the edge or a quarter of the way across. So, and there's answers for both and they're not the same for the coronal and sagittal plane. Josh, can you draw me a picture? Yeah, well, yeah, that kind of makes like, my brain hurt. <laughs> it makes it makes mine hurt too because I don't like doing it. I don't like using screws in the proximal tibia, but I, I'll just go with uh, split into thirds on the AP and mid sagittal on the lateral because that's all I can do. I agree with Jeremy. Plus, the way he explained it made a lot of sense to me, so I'm with that. I'll, I'll be a third vote for that, mostly because I think that's what I try to do, but I'm not really sure if that's the right answer. Maybe I shouldn't yeah. be trying to do that. Yeah, I mean, this is a study that I think shows that, and, and you guys are you guys are right, is clearly getting more lateral, especially on the medial side. It gets thinner and more dangerous. So you certainly don't want to be on the medial 25% because it's pretty thin there. But on the sagittal plane, dead center is the best. And on the coronal plane, aiming for that 33rd, 
percent from the edge is, is where it's typically the thickest. Um, and then the other thing that was interesting that makes sense is increasing age and female sex correlated with thinner medial and lateral heights of the epiphysis. So it kind of confirms what I think most of us kind of aim for those spots in general, but gives us a little data. Julie, you want to take us home? Absolutely. Um, so this is going to be a study out of Singapore, the National University Health System. So they're talking about a predictive scoring method for recurrent patellar instability after a first time patellar dislocation. So you've got a couple options for predictive factors. So you've got options age, TTD, excuse me, TTG distance, tibiofemoral angle, and then we can look at patellar tilt at different degrees of flexion. We can look at congruence angle at different degrees of flexion. We can look at sulcus angle. We can look at trochlear groove depth. There's a lot of stuff we can look at as far as radiographic parameters around the knee. So what, uh, what if, if everybody could vote for one factor that would you think would contribute most to subsequent risk for subsequent dislocation after a first-time dislocation, what, what would your votes be? If, if we could come up with our own scoring system, what do you think is going to be the most predictive? My vote would be age. Okay. Any specific cutoff? No. They all okay. get referred to Dr. Bauer. Okay. <laughs> Perfect. Can you have ligamentous laxity as a, uh, um, as a quantifiable variable? Uh, they didn't, but we'll add that to the Lauer classification. Well, that's going to be not correct if they didn't study it. So I'm going to go with age. <laughs> okay. How about, did they add patellar height in there? Uh, they did. Yep. I'll go with that. Okay. All right. I'm going to go with, if I can re-dislocate them in clinic, that's the worst indicator. Okay. Good, good point. You Anybody are else? I, I know the answer, but I found it surprising. Yeah, I agree. It, it, it was a bit surprising. So they found that four variables were the most predictive. And those four variables were age, about 16 was their cutoff, TTG, congruence angle at 10 and 20 degrees of flexion. And what's a little bit I think interesting about the study is they used a kinematic CT to get those congruence angles in, in the various degrees of flexion, which I don't know that obviously everybody has access to. So I think the question is how, um, you know, reliable this is for the, for the general population, the general practitioner. Um, but they looked at a whole lot of stuff and really those were the only things that predicted uh, with any kind of sensitivity or specificity, a repeat dislocation. So the sensitivity was 100% and specificity, specificity was 73.3%. So, you know, their idea is you, you categorize these kids into patients that are high risk. You can go ahead and operate on those after a first-time dislocation. Otherwise, you should continue to treat them non-operatively the first time around. So I don't know how many people have kinematic CDs available at their clinics. but Well, Julia, can I ask, and this yeah. is related to Jeremy's question of patellar height, I, mm -hmm. I don't know exactly. Is congruence angle at 10 degrees of flexion, like where the patella engages at 10 degrees, measuring that congruence angle there? And if it's really flat, then that's a bad predictor. Is that what you're saying? Right. So congruence angle would be like the difference between, it's it's kind of patellar tilt, basically. So patellar tilt compared to the groove. Okay. I got it. I'm just saying, yeah. I think that the elevated patellas are going to be less congruent at 
those higher or those less flexion angles, I guess. Yeah, I agree. and it the, seems like. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. I was just gonna say I agree. It seems like that has to somehow be a proxy for patellar height and for trochlear depth. But I'm just surprised those two didn't show up in the uh, results. Yeah, they didn't, and they used Caton de Champs uh, index as their patellar height. So, which is you know, as we know, uh, maybe not the one that we most mostly use. So that was great pronunciation. Jeremy, is it true that if you scroll through the MRIs fast enough, it becomes a dynamic uh, study for you? I think, I think that's how it's done real fast. All right. I think that is all we got. Thank you, everyone. Jeremy, Dan, thanks so much for making the time to join us. Uh, I thought this was really interesting. If anyone out there is a spine enthusiast and hasn't listened to the recent POSNA webinar featuring uh, our own Dr. Dan Bouton, you should check it out. It's on POSNA Academy. Thank you, everyone. Have a great night. Thank you. Okay, guys. Thanks. Thanks for joining. Thanks, guests. I think this is our first on-air uh, opportunity to congratulate Julia. Yes. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Congratulations, Julia. Yeah, I can. When, when's I, your I, anniversary? Uh, well, it's July 30th, so I haven't had time to forget it yet. Mm-hmm.